Please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you in the same spirit as the prayer we prayed at the beginning of this service, because without you we are not able to please you. Lord, without you we're not able to receive the word of God. Without the work of your grace in our lives, the preacher is not able to preach. The congregation is not able to receive. Lord, we come to you in complete dependence upon the work of your Holy Spirit through the scripture as it was written and now as it is being proclaimed to do this work of ministry we call preaching. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would uh, let good news be preached in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. Um, I look out and I, I see a lot of people I don't know, so let me introduce myself. I'm Ben Sharp. I'm the rector, which is Anglican speak for senior pastor. I'm the rector of Christ Church, and I have been away for the last three months on sabbatical, and that's why the church has grown considerably. <laughs> Seriously, I want to thank God and thank you for uh, the, the way you received Benji's leadership and for the leadership that Benji offered. He's done a terrific job, um, and I... I <laughs> I really, I really loved uh, participating when I was here and watching online when I wasn't. I want to thank all of you as lay and clergy together, our leaders and our lay people and volunteers. You did a terrific job over the summer. Uh, Christchurch never missed a beat, and you are a healthy and spirit-filled congregation, so I thank God for that. Uh, by God's grace, in my absence, this church has gone from strength to strength, and I pray that that will continue to be the case because the same God who was here during my sabbatical, is still here right now. So, uh, We're going to look at that passage from Mark's gospel this morning, Mark chapter 9. And so if you want to follow along on your iPhone or your whatever, I'll recognize that you're not just checking sports scores, but you're actually looking at the Bible. Uh, or you can look it up in your pew Bible there. It's Mark chapter 9, verses... 14 through 29, that's where we're going to look this morning and delve into the scriptures. That passage is so rich, there are so many places, so many points of contact that we could go with this, but I want to focus on one statement, one statement in this scripture we heard read this morning that could be the motto, could be the motto for all Christians living in the post-Christian West, so North America and Europe and Australia and New Zealand, all the, the western part of this world, South Africa. What would, be that, what would be that passage? Well, it's this. Immediately the father, is verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Almost on a weekly basis, I encounter believers who are struggling in this context that we live in right now, to cling to their faith. Now, if that's not you, bless your heart. May your tribe increase. But for the rest of us, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at what brought the father of this demon-afflicted boy to the point where he would cry out something like that to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. And as it pertains to this particular passage, what accounts for a person? So within the context of this passage, what accounts for a person experiencing this mixture of belief 
and unbelief, as it is in this passage. And then I want to show from this passage why that Father's cry of desperation and Jesus' response are in fact good news for us today and how it can carry us, carry you and me in our struggle to believe. But then at the end, I want to, I want to expand that. I want to broaden that biblical insight to why so many believers, as I said uh, just a minute ago, in the post-Christian West, so many believers feel like they are in that boat today of, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, and what can we do about it? So that's the outline for this morning, and with that in mind, let's just jump right in. Here in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, what's going on? Well, Jesus and Peter and James and John have been up on a mountain, and during that time of of prayer and fellowship, Jesus is transfigured before them. It says in Mark's gospel that his... uh, his, his clothes, it was like a, a commercial, his got, clothes got whiter than anybody could bleach them. You know, I want some of that detergent. Transfiguration detergent. But, <laughs> but he, he, became, he was shining with radiance and his glory was revealed and Moses and Elijah, the two great, fig, two great figures from the Old Testament, the law and the prophets represented there and Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus. And so there's this amazing theophany Jesus is transfigured. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. And so after that moment of glory, they come back down from the mountain. And what is happening? Well, the very first thing that Jesus encounters as He comes off the Mount of Transfiguration is an argument. Conflict. Listen to what it says in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them and, the, and scribes, teachers of the law, scribes arguing with them. So what is this argument about? Well, we're not explicitly told, but I think we can make an educated guess. Evidently, the disciples are arguing with the scribes, the teachers of the law, because they have probably been sent from Jerusalem, more than likely, to determine the bona fides the orthodoxy, the authenticity of Jesus as a rabbi and of his followers. They've been watching the nine disciples in this particular moment. They've watched those nine disciples who didn't go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but were there doing ministry. They are watching those disciples fail, fail, being unsuccessful in driving out an evil spirit that is tormenting a man's young son. So we can only assume that the argument that they are having goes along this line. If your rabbi's teaching is true, then why are you not able to exercise this demon? Remember, by the way, how Mark's gospel begins. Jesus, this is Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. The good news that God's kingdom, His reign on earth is beginning. And right after Jesus says those words, He goes into a synagogue in Mark 1, 21 through 28 and drives out an unclean spirit. God's reign is beginning. The reign of evil is coming to an end. Boom! Jesus jettisons an evil spirit. First thing He does after calling the disciples. And so the authorities have heard about that. 
But now the disciples that Jesus has left down at the bottom of the mountain have failed in bringing deliverance to this young man. And the scribes are saying, you and your rabbi have been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, your failure does not seem to back up your preaching. Your failure does not back up your preaching. So there's this raging theological argument going on, but standing right there, forgotten and on the sideline, is a desperate father who's just wanting someone to deliver his son from this terrible oppression. They're having a religious argument, and his son is afflicted by a, a, de a demonic spirit. So what is eroding this father's faith in that moment? And this is where it's specific to this passage. Well, I think there's two things particularly. First of all, listen, desperation. The first thing that is eroding this father's faith is desperation. The severity, the enormity, uh, the, uh, the, the overwhelming nature of the problem seems so big that God in that moment seemed small. Listen to what it says, verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, the father said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Desperation. You know, we can certainly understand that. Our struggles seem so enormous. And by the way, I have pretty piddling first world struggles. But to me, they seem so enormous, so real, so present and overwhelming that they can begin to define our reality, that the, that the reality of our problems seems far larger than the reality of God. And we can all sympathize with that. We can all say we've shared that experience. So desperation can erode and is eroding this man's faith. But then there's another element here. So desperation, and what's the other element? disappointment, desperation and disappointment. The father says in verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you. Now, wait a second. I thought Jesus had just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I thought he'd been interacting with those nine disciples that were left down at the bottom of the hill. But you see, in the ancient world, when it came to teachers and their disciples, there was a saying that went like this. The messenger of a man is as the man himself. So as far as in that culture it was concerned, those disciples represented Jesus. You know what? That still is true. We still represent Jesus. So as far as this man's concerned, he just brought his son to Jesus. And he, had, and he was met with the failure, the failure of the followers of Jesus. So I asked your disciples, verse 18... So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able. Literally, it says, they were not, listen, they were not strong enough. Your representatives failed me, Jesus. Here's how that applies to us. We often hear folks say that they cannot believe or that their credulity is impaired because of the failures of the followers of Jesus. We hear that, don't we? Well, friends, I want you to know that's nothing new. It's right here in this passage in Mark's gospel. 
you know, uh, I, um, you, you can tell by looking at us the way we're right on the cutting edge of fashion and all that kind of thing here at Christ Church. We're really into church marketing. Yep, that's us. No, not really. But here's an idea for marketing if you want one that comes from this scripture. The church, disappointing people since A.D. 30. People are often disappointed with Jesus because they are disappointed with me and you as followers of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know we should not be crippled by our culpability when our failures as a church make it hard for people to believe in the Lord that we love. We shouldn't let that cripple us in our ability to do ministry and mission, but we do need to own it. In humility and humbly confess it and say, yes, we've been disappointing people since the beginning and repent of it and seek the power of the Spirit to live in a way that is more congruous with the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in us. So let me ask you, has your ability to trust in Jesus ever suffered because of the failure of his followers? Has your ability to trust in Jesus ever suffered because of the failure of his followers? Has your ability to believe been overwhelmed by the enormity of your struggle? Well, let me show you in this passage the remedy that is given for that. The Father in this passage bypasses the disciples. You know, uh, Jesus says, what are you arguing about? And before they can get into the 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 content of the argument, the Father just speaks right up. I've had all of y'all arguing and failing I can take. I'm talking to the man himself. The Father bypasses the disciples, goes directly to Jesus, and finds, listen, listen, going directly to Jesus, he finds that there is superabundant grace even for his faltering faith. That Jesus' actions far exceed the little faltering faith that he brings to Jesus. Listen to what it says in verse 22. And it has often, the father speaking of, the, of what happens to his son, and it, the demon, has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. All things are possible for one who believes. This is a critical statement, and most of us hear it, I think, in the wrong way. Most of us hear that statement, all things are possible for he who believes or the one who believes. As soon as we hear that statement, we think it is referring to the one who is petitioning Jesus. And I think you can make that argument, and we can say more about that, but that's how we almost only hear that statement. All things are possible for the one who believes, and we think, oh my goodness, all things will be possible for me if I can believe, right? That's how we hear it, isn't it? But I think we need to flip the script, particularly in the context of this passage. We are coming to Jesus with our little faith, but Jesus has infinite faith. 
in his Father, in the goodness of his Father, the power of his Father. Jesus, please listen, and if you want to write something down, write this down. Jesus is the one who believes for us when we can't. Jesus is the one who believes for us when we can't. That's gospel. That's good news. That's why we need a savior and not an advisor. Being told you just need to have more faith does, has never, in my opinion, caused anyone to have more faith. Have you noticed that? It just makes me mad. I just feel defeated. You just need to have more faith. Thanks. Just, just slap some duct tape on your faith. Duct tape it up real good. Try real hard to believe. Believe harder. Sorry, my southern is exposing itself right now. We call that southern exposure. Ironically, listen, when people are saying or even believing, I just need to try harder to believe, ironically, when we do this, we are turning from faith to works righteousness. Are you listening? Because we're saying this, hey, you, dig down deep, grunt and strain and try real hard and self-generate some of that faith stuff. Isn't that what we're saying? That is works righteousness. And that just leads to defeat and disillusionment and despair. Faith is not some discrete substance that you can just go out and get more of. It's not like midi-chlorians in Star Wars. He's got a lot of midi-chlorians. The force is strong with this one. I, I just lost most of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Faith, belief, has to have an object in order for it to exist. It has to be directed towards something. It's not just kind of floating around as a discrete thing called faith. I'm going to go and get faith out of the faith canister and slather some on this moment. No, it has to be directed towards something. In other words, faith is the disposition, listen, faith is the disposition of confidence and trust in the infinitely good, infinitely loving, infinitely powerful God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. And that confidence, listen, that confidence, that disposition of trust is, please hear me, is itself the gift of God. It is grace. We don't cook it up. We need to receive it as a gift. And that just takes a lot of the load off, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So the father takes his imperfect, flawed, struggling faith and brings that pitiful, desperate gift and gives it to Jesus. I believe, not real, not real well, help my unbelief. What is he praying? Help me. I can't make more faith. Help my unbelief. And here is the good news. Here's good news for you. Jesus accepted that imperfect faith and drives out the demon that's afflicting that man's son. And it gets even better than that. 
You know, to some people, Mark says that it looked like the boy was worth, worse off than before Jesus intervenes. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's implying because the boy thrashes around and he grinds his teeth, does all that stuff, and then he looks like he's dead. Maybe I shouldn't ask Jesus to help after all. But listen to what it says right after that. This is Mark 9, verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand, the young man by the hand, lifted him, lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus lifted him up, and he arose. I wish we had the icon of the Anastasis up here. What? That's a big old picture of Jesus raising the dead. On the day of resurrection, he's grabbed. What does he do in that in that icon? I'll just you you imagine this. Jesus has bust down the bust. There you go, busted down. Our Lord hath bust forth the gates of hell. <laughs> Jesus has busted down the doors of hell, and he's taken Adam and Eve. And in that in that icon, this is Christians putting theology into art. Ready? This is old old Christian stuff. And he's grabbing Adam and Eve, our first parents, and raising them, pulling them by the hand out of the grave. That's what we see right here. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Mark is intentionally using, please listen, resurrection language here. Mark tells this story intentionally. Jesus is able to take our faith, which is mingled with doubt, even that little bit of faith, and he can raise the dead with it. Wow! Wonderful! That's good news! I can live with that. That man's son is not just delivered from oppression, he is raised to a new life that is defined by the reign of God. R-E-I-G-N the rule and reign of God. Isn't that good news? Jesus answers prayers that are mingled with doubt. Jesus answers prayers that are mingled with doubt. Jesus will answer your prayer even if it's mingled with doubt, not because you're good, but because he's good. Not because you're strong, but because he's almighty. Oh, such grace. Henry Nouwen said of this, Henry Nouwen said that prayer, this is what he said, that prayer is a way of being empty and useless. Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Being empty and useless in the presence of God and so up proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing simply the result of our hard work. All is grace, and nothing is the result of our hard work. Now, I love that, and we could stop right there. But many of us struggle with a type of unbelief, not because of our desperate problems or of our disappointments, but many of us in this room right now find we, are simu uh, find we simultaneously believe and yet we feel the sucking tide of unbelief in our hearts because we live in a post-Christian culture. Now, this may not apply to you, but I guarantee you, for many people in this room, especially for younger people in this room, this does apply. Jamie Smith assesses our current situation, uh, philosopher, theologian, James K. A. Smith, 
assesses our current situation in this way. Listen to what he says. Even as faith endures in our secular age, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing does not come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. We're all Thomas, doubting Thomas. We're all Thomas now. Years ago, theologian and sociologist Peter Berger said that all societies have what he called, and I know, please, this, this really does address a real issue. He says that all societies possess what he called plausibility structures. Plausibility structures. What does that mean? It means that there are certain underlying assumptions that we never really talk about that make some things seem plausible, in other words, believable, and some things seem implausible. So if you travel a lot, if you go to a very different culture, things that we find very believable and normal in our culture seem outrageous and weird in that culture, and things that they believe, we just roll our eyes about. You know, I can't believe they believe that. Because it's based on plausibility structures. Here's the point. The Christian faith is no more, please listen, the Christian faith is no more fantastical than many of the claims that are taken without even a second thought by modern Western people. Many of the beliefs in modern Western society that we just take for granted are, if we thought about it, quite fantastical. Modern people believe all sorts of things that would cause previous generations to just shake their heads, wondering at our credulous gullibility. It's because this is why that's happened. Our plausibilities have changed. And so, um, and I, I want you to hear this is not, I'm not throwing rocks or anything like this. I'm actually referring to Carl Truman's new book about the, um, the rise of the modern self, and you can go look that up. Some of you are reading that book together. But um, I, wanted, I wanted to say this not in any kind of pejorative way at all. I just want you to see how the plausibility structures have changed. Okay, are you ready? Christ, listen, it is no, our plausibility structures have changed so that to say, listen, Jesus rose from the dead is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable statement to many people in the West today. But to say I am a woman trapped in a man's body is taken as a serious and meaningful statement. I'm not making any negative comment there. I just want you to see that that now is plausible. But that's the, we're, this is the first time in all of history that that's a plausible statement. What's happened? Plausibility, the underlying assumptions that define, kind of give permission for what is believable or unbelievable in our culture have dramatically, revolutionarily, that's a word, shifted. And here's the point. Please listen. For many of us, and perhaps for you, the gravitational attraction of modernity, of these new plausibility structures, I know this is kind of heady, but it's very important, make us, listen, those, that, that, the attraction of those new plausibility structures make us feel alienated and distant from classical, creedal Christianity. We experience this most often when we feel more connected, and we often do, to our post-Christian secular friends and co-workers than to creedal Christianity. 
Christianity rooted in scriptures as expressed in the Nicene and Apostles' creeds. We begin to see, if we're feeling that way, this is what's happening, this is where the unbelief begins to filter in. We begin to see Christian plausibility structures, the things that we've always thought were you know, rational, and maybe even Christians themselves, as boorish, irrelevant, and even antisocial. That's the world we live in. So while we may not be with the Father desperate and disappointed, we find ourselves awash in this, this secularizing culture where the sands have shifted and we feel like we don't have any foundation at all and we see the world carrying on with a new set of assumptions that we didn't believe but are strangely attracted to, attractive to us. And as we're in that context, we find our Christian faith less believable. So what do we do about that? Well, I, that's a whole other sermon. Don't worry. This is the conclusion. But very, very briefly, dear Christian, if that, dear struggling Christian, if that describes you, then let me offer two points of counsel to close with. First point of counsel, you need to invest deeply. That means more than Sunday morning. You need to invest deeply with, in community with other Christians who may be struggling just like you, but who are committed to the classical biblical faith. You need to invest in that because that's where that, that true, eternally true set of plausibility structures is lived out. That story is told day to day is in community with those other believers. You've got to do this. This is why life groups are no... Folks, if you lived in 1950... You could probably just go Sunday to Sunday and maybe have prayer meeting on Wednesday night and be fine. Everything would be, all your doors would be hunky, hunky-dory. We don't live in 1950. We live in 2021. And we need to intentionally invest deeply in Christian community. But more immediately this morning, and this is the second point of counsel, when you come to this altar to receive Christ's broken body and shed blood, pray this prayer. If this is you, pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.